Welcome to volume one of this Uvula audio presentation of Sea Gold, a Rick Brandt adventure by John Blaine. Your narrator is Jim Campanella. All Uvula audio books are in the public domain. Regular listeners to this podcast may remember that John Blaine was actually Hal Goodwin of Divers Down and Rip Foster fame. Sea Gold is the third book in the Rick Brandt series. Rick Brandt is about 19 years old, and his ex-Marine pal, Don Scott, both live on Spindrift Island off the coast of New Jersey, where Rick's father, Hartson Brandt, heads the scientists of the Spindrift Foundation. In Seagold, Rick and Scotty are off for the summer because college is out of session, and all the scientists have temporarily left Spindrift for other research challenges. Rick and Scotty get summer jobs at a sea mine off the coast of Connecticut, and quickly discover that they have bitten off more than they can chew for a bit of summer spending money. Someone is out to sabotage the mining operation by hook or by crook, and it's not exactly evident who that unseen enemy may be or what their motivations are. And now, Seagold. Chapter 1. Trouble at Crayville. The coast of Connecticut slid by under the wing of the Yellow Piper Cub. There were alternate stretches of green coastal land and sandy beaches. Now and then, an attractive little town appeared and passed below. To the east, Long Island Sound glittered blue and green in the noonday sun, and Long Island itself was a low bulk on the far horizon. Rick Brandt, sitting on the passenger side of the little plane, stretched and gave a luxurious yawn. He was a slim boy just past high school age, with light brown hair and brown eyes that always had a twinkle lurking in them. He was at peace with the world today. School had just closed and the long summer stretched pleasantly ahead. He didn't know yet how the vacation would be spent, but something would turn up. He made a lazy check of the instrument panel and the plane's position. Then he grinned at the husky, dark-haired boy who was piloting. You're flying Chinese again. Rick accused. Don Scott, called Scotty, snapped out of his absorbed contemplation of something under the left wing. Chinese? What are you talking about? One wing low, Rick said. Straighten up and fly right, bird boy. Scotty gave the control wheel a slight turn and leveled off. Have to watch that. Every time I look out the port window, that wing goes down. Referring to the left and right as port and starboard, was a habit Scotty had brought back from his service in the Marines. Although only a year Brick Brandt Sr., he had three years of wartime duty with the Marines behind him. What's so interesting down there? Rick asked. He craned to see, but the fuselage blocked his vision. There's a funny-looking factory of some kind next to that town, Scotty said. 
He obligingly rocked the plane up on a wing and pulled around in a tight bank so that Rick could see. Rick gazed down through the 2,000 feet of emptiness to where a small town lay against the shore. Directly south of it, he saw a plot of ground on the waterfront that harbored what might have been two enormous beehives, half a dozen swimming pools, and miscellaneous other buildings. He reached for the road map by which they were navigating. Let's see. We've passed Bridgeport, but we haven't reached New Haven. He made a quick check. That must be Crayville. Scotty gave him a puzzled look. All right, it's Crayville. Why are you excited? That's the new sea mine plant down there. It is. Scotty looked blank. I saw an item about it in the paper, Rick explained. Two men have a new process for mining the sea, and they're putting up the plant at Crayville. Boy, I'd love to get a closer look at it. Okay, I'm kind of dense here, Scotty said. If anybody asked me what mining the sea was, I'd tell them it was planting mines to blow up ships. No, not that kind, Rick grinned. This mine extracts minerals from seawater. It's not a new idea. There are quite a few plants that extract magnesium and bromide from seawater. But the paper said these guys have some new processes that'll get a lot of other stuff out of the water too. Maybe even gold. Scotty was looking down with new interest. Well, that'd be some stunt if they could pull that off. They probably can, Rick said. An idea had been taking form in his mind. Listen, remember what we said yesterday about getting jobs for the summer? Are you thinking of getting jobs down there? Sure, as long as the professors haven't got anything cooking as spindrift, we could try to get jobs on some kind of scientific project. The professors Rick referred to were the world-famous scientists who lived on Spindrift Island and had their laboratories there. Rick's father, Hartson W. Brandt, was head of the important scientific group that already had contributed so much to the science of electronics. It was during one of the experiments sending a controlled rocket to the moon that Rick had met Scotty. The ex-Marine had rescued him from a possible beating at the hands of Manfred Wessel's group and later had been instrumental in defeating the renegade scientist's efforts to destroy the Spindrift Island rocket. After the adventure of the rocket's shadow, as they had called it, Scotty, who was an orphan, had become an accepted member of the Spindrift Island family. Later, the two boys had gone with Professor Hobart Zircon and Professor Julius Weiss to High Tibet to set up a radar transmitter for sending messages via the moon. They had succeeded only after overcoming many obstacles thrown in their way by the unscrupulous adventurer Hendrik von Groot and the lost tribe of the Mongols, whose city was hidden in the Valley of the Golden Tomb. Since then, however, no experiments of an important nature had been stated, and the boys, foreseeing no adventures on Spindrift Island, had discussed getting jobs for the summer. Rick turned the idea over in his mind. His great ambition was to follow in his famous father's footsteps and become a leading electronics scientist. Mining the sea was new. It would be exciting, and he could learn a great deal. Let's go down and look it over, he said impulsively. Well, I guess we might land on that stretch of beach, if it's hard-packed enough, Scotty suggested. In a few moments, they were low over the water, running parallel with the beach. It looks okay, Rick said after a survey. You think you could put her in? Scotty was learning to handle the cub surprisingly well, but he had never made a landing on anything except a good field. His eyes searched for possible obstacles. I think so, 
he answered finally. Rick tightened his safety belt. Okay. The cub banked sharply around as Scotty lined up the stretch of beach. In a moment, Rick saw sand below. The beach came up with a slight jar, and then they were rolling to a stop on the hard-packed sand. Nice going, Rick commented. He stepped out onto the beach as Scotty cut the engine. The sea mine plant was only a few hundred yards away. Scotty joined him and they stood looking at what they could see of it over the top of the high board fence. There was no sound from inside. Place looks like it's deserted, said Rick. It's Sunday, remember? Scotty reminded him. They're probably all sleeping, like sensible people should do on a Sunday afternoon. Rick was already striding up the bank toward the road that led past the plant. His active imagination raced ahead of him. He had visions of great quantities of seawater pouring into the plant in a steady rush to be reduced finally to gold and silver, magnesium, aluminum, or any of a thousand other things. And he had a vision of himself taking part in the magic transformation of seawater to valuable minerals. Wait, I was wrong, Scotty remarked as they reached the road. Look. A man stood at what was evidently the plant gate. He seemed to be trying to peer through a crack in the boards that formed the gate. He must have just come back from church, Rick said. Those certainly aren't working clothes he's wearing. The man was attired in a severe black suit, and he wore a starched collar, black string tie, and a white shirt. His gray hat was pulled down low on his forehead. Well, must be a lucky break, Scotty said. He's probably one of the owners coming to see whether his plant is still there. Rick cupped his hands to his mouth. Hello! The man's head jerked up in surprise. Rick caught a glimpse of a face, startling even at a distance. It was astonishingly white. Hey, look, he's running! Scotty exclaimed. The man had turned and was departing on a dead run. He rounded a corner of the board fence and disappeared. In a moment, they heard the roar of a car engine and a black sedan shot out from beyond the fence and vanished in the direction of the town. Rick just had time to notice that the car's rear bumper hung at an angle. One end of it almost touched the ground. Well, that beats me, Rick exclaimed. He took off like a P-80 as soon as he saw us. Well, maybe we startled him. He must have seen the cub, I guess, Rick pointed out. He probably saw us when we were up high, but this fence is pretty tall. I doubt he saw us sit down on the beach, although he must have heard the motor. Rick nodded. A man standing at the gate of the high fence wouldn't have been able to see them land. Perhaps he had thought the plane was just buzzing the beach, but that didn't explain why the man had run. Rick scratched his head, still bewildered. Do you suppose he was trying to break in? Scotty grinned. If he was, he was the silliest-looking burglar I've ever seen. Rick recalled the severe black suit and the stiff collar and laughed. How many burglars have you seen? he asked. I had a platoon full of them, Scotty said. Let's see if anybody's home. Actually, there were two gates Rick saw. One was normal size, cut into the fence, and the other composed of two whole sections of fence that could be swung back to admit the biggest trucks. Rick applied his eye to a crack in the door but could see no sign of life. Nobody's home. I guess we'll have to come back tomorrow. Scotty gave him a quizzical look. I recognize that tone of voice. You already sold yourself the idea of working here. Well, why not? Rick said, grinning sheepishly. So what if I do make up my mind in a hurry? 
proves I have a mind to make up. It's okay, Scotty assured him. I've always wanted to work in a sea mine. He looked longingly in the direction of the town. What do you say we rustle up some chow? My stomach tells me it's time to eat. You and your stomach, Rick jeered. You should hire it out to the Bureau of Standards in Washington as a stand-in for their time clock. I'm a healthy grown boy. Can I help it if I need lots of vitamins? Said Scotty with dignity. Come on, let's stake the plane down and set up the alarm. They walked swiftly back to the plane and took four steel stakes and a coil of wire out of the baggage compartment. Working with the speed of long practice, they pushed the stakes into the sand in the form of a square around the plane, then strung them with two strands of wire, forming a low fence. Rick took the ends of the wires and led them into the plane through the door, which he left partially ajar. He connected them to clips on a black metal box. Then, careful not to touch any part of the plane, he reached through the door and flipped a switch. This was his own adaptation of the standard electric fence, plus an automobile burglar alarm. If anybody touched the fence, they'd get a harmless but frightening shock. If they jumped the fence and touched the plane, a loud horn was set off, continuing its ear-splitting blast until somebody came to disconnect it. Come on, Scotty said impatiently. I'll faint from hunger and you'll have to carry me. He leapt over the fence and started for the road. Rick hastened to fall into step. Now that Scotty had mentioned it, he felt hungry too. I'll bet we could get jobs, he mused. They have a lot of electrical equipment. We could help with that. Yeah, sure. Can't you see me with my grandchildren on my knee and I'll tell them, Yep, Grampy worked in a seam mine once. I'll never forget it. You should have seen us drilling the shafts. Straight down, a hundred fathoms. The fish used to watch us go by, and their jaws would just hang open. Some work for us. We hired sculpins to pull up the bags of gold. How did you keep the water from filling up the shafts again, Grandpop? Rick asked in a high voice like a small boy's. I thought you'd ask that, son, Scotty said, stroking his imaginary beard. We had a boy named Brant working for us with a sea scoop. When the shaft would start to fill up with water, he'd scoop it out. He was good at it, too. Strong back, weak mind, though. If he'd been smart like me, he'd have known you can't drill holes in water, and he'd likely be drowned. Don't pay to know too much. Yeah, you're living proof of that, Rick said in his normal voice, and ducked as Scotty swung. Remember, you're weak from needing food, he cautioned. Don't wear yourself out. At the mention of food, Scotty became serious again. Well, that's the gospel truth, son. Let's shake a leg. He lengthened his stride toward the little town up the road. As they reached the outskirts, Rick looked around him, agreeably surprised. From the air, Crayville hadn't looked like much, but here on the edge of town, there were neat little houses with neatly cropped green lawns. But as they entered the town itself, the air of well-being gave way to one of neglect. A big frame structure with a faded sound that proclaimed it the mansion house and dominated the central green. There were a few stores and a dilapidated motion picture theater. Closer to the waterfront, they began to see signs of the town's chief industry. Nets, lobster pots, barrels, and rusted fishing equipment. The houses had a dried, weather-beaten look about them, and the atmosphere was a combination of odors. Salt water, tidal marshes, fishing boat engines, and fish long departed from this world. Scotty remarked on the fact that they hadn't seen a sign of life. 
I know what the principal industry is here. It ain't fishing, it's sleeping. They reached the waterfront and saw that a boardwalk ran along it, a sort of entryway to the piers that thrust out into the water. Scotty pointed to a 50-foot boat tied up nearby. Looks like a tug, he remarked. It's a dragger, Rick told him. They tow big nets from these things. This town supplies a lot of fish, flounders mostly, to the New York markets. Suddenly, Scotty lifted his head and sniffed. Rick grinned. He always maintained that his friend could sense food farther than a bird dog could sense a quail. Now what? Clam chowder, Scotty said longingly. Can only be clam chowder. He inspected the dock area. Doesn't that sound say restaurant? It did once, Rick agreed. Let's give it a try. The appetizing aroma of seafood sharpened his own appetite as well. As they hurried toward the door, Rick took a closer look at the sign. He was able to make out Zuki's Restaurant. It was open for business all right, and it seemed to be crowded. Well, I guess this is where the town is spending their Sunday, Scotty said. Let's go in. The mingled aromas of smoke, sawdust, beer, and seafood struck their noses forcibly as they pushed through the door and stepped down the two steps to floor level. Booths were lined against one wall, and the floor was crowded with tables. A number of men glanced up at the boys entered, and Rick guessed that they must be fishermen. Their faces were as weather-beaten as the restaurant sign, and they wore nondescript clothes. Towering over four other men seated around one table, Rick saw a man who looked more like a lumberjack than a fisherman. He was young and blonde with massive shoulders that stretched the fabric of a bright red shirt. The big man met Rick's eyes and grinned. At least there was one friendly face in the crowd, Rick thought. The expressions of the other fishermen ranged from disinterest to scowls. Scotty spotted a counter and swung his leg over a vacant stool. Rick took the stool next to him. The counterman came over toward them and made a pretense of wiping off the counter with a much-used dish towel. Yeah. His eyes swung from one to the other, and the toothpick in his mouth followed suit. Two clam chowders, Scotty said, not bothering to consult Rick. Yeah. He turned toward the kitchen, seeming to resent the need for moving. Rick looked into the dingy mirror behind the counter and could see almost the whole restaurant. A pudgy man with a round red face was moving from table to table, stopping to talk with the fishermen. It was so noisy that Rick couldn't hear what he was saying, but he seemed violent about it, thumping the table now and then to emphasize a point. I ought to rent this place out to make movies, Scotty said. I can imagine pirates striding through that door yelling for clam chowder. Rick grinned. It did look a lot like the setting of a grade B thriller. Looks like a local hangout, all right. Say, do you suppose anybody here could tell us where to find the mine owners? They must live nearby. Well, here comes Greasy Joe. Ask him, Scotty said. The counterman walked gingerly toward them, balancing two steaming bowls of chowder. He put them down, reached under the counter, and brought out a handful of crackers, which he dropped on the counter between them. I beg your pardon, Rick asked. Could you tell me where we might be able to find the owners of the sea mine plant? The counterman had turned to leave, but now he swung back glaring. What did you say? He demanded. He sounded ugly, 
Rick ignored the tone and tried again. Where can we find the owners of the sea mine? He realized all at once that the noise behind them had ceased, replaced by an ominous silence. In the mirror, Rick saw the beefy, red-faced man moving toward the counter. Scotty spoke into the silence. Well, what about it? What do you want with those guys? A voice behind them demanded. The boys turned on their stools. It was the man Rick had seen in the mirror. His close-set pale eyes switched rapidly from one boy to the other, and his jaw was thrust forward belligerently. Have they been in today? Rick asked politely. No, the beefy man exploded. They ain't been in, and they better not come in. He turned to the men at the tables. Right, boys. An ugly growl of agreement rose from the room. What we want to know is, what do you kids want with them? Business, Scotty said shortly. The man switched his glance to Scotty. Oh, so you're doing business with him, hey? Working for him, maybe. We might be, Rick answered quietly. He took in the man's unshaven face, the dirty flannel shirt that puffed from his pants top, his sparse, unkempt hair, the bulldog thrust of his jaws, and he didn't like what he saw. Get out, the beefy man said viciously. You guys work for the plant. You ain't wanted here. Get out. From long experience, Rick knew when Scotty's temper was coming to a boil. He put a hand on his friend's arm, but Scotty pushed it aside and stood up. You want to try putting us out? He asked. Easy, Rick cautioned. I don't know what you're so upset about, mister. We only asked a simple question. Ask it outside. We don't want guys who work for the plant in here. Not more than we want the plant in this town. Now get going. But what's wrong with having a sea mining plant in the town? The man's hostility aroused Rick's quick curiosity. You know blasted well what's wrong. The beefy man's voice rose as though he were addressing the whole room. The waste from that mine will ruin us. It'll turn Crayville into a ghost town. It'll ruin the fishing grounds and poison every oyster and lobster for 20 miles. But they're protected by law, Rick protested. The man took a menacing half-step toward him. Who are you calling a liar, young feller? Rick felt Scotty tense and again put a hand out, but it wasn't necessary. A newcomer suddenly had come between the beefy man and the boys. He was small and thin with gray hair and a weathered, wrinkled face. Leave him alone, he said quietly. They're only boys, Stoles. You keep out of this galt. The thin man must have been well over 65, but he showed no fear of the blusterer. Run along, boys, he said. He gestured toward the door. Rick knew authority when he heard it. He obeyed the old man without question, putting some coins on the counter and motioning to Scotty. In a moment, they were out on the boardwalk. I don't luck running out of there, Scotty said hotly. Why should we let an overstuffed windbag like that push us around? Relax. Rick said. The old man knew what he was talking about. We'll get out of here. There's no point in mixing in local troubles. Now I know I'm going after a job at that sea mine plant. No greasy character like that's going to run me out of town. Rick felt much the same way about it, but he only shrugged. There's nothing we can do today, Scotty, anyway. Let's get started back. We didn't even get to eat our chowder, Scotty grumbled. Well, that'll leave more room for waffles when we get home. 
His own temper wasn't as explosive as Scotty's, but he was just as angry down deep inside, and he was curious. For some reason, the man called Stoles was spreading lies about the sea mine. Something unpleasant was cooking in Crayville. He felt Scotty watching him. What's on your mind? his friend asked. I was thinking. Tomorrow morning, let's come back to Crayville. Scotty breathed a sigh of relief. You had me worried. For a while, I thought you were letting Blubberpuss scare you off. Well, I am a little scared, Rick grinned but not as scared as I am curious. Chapter 2 Rick Gets a Telegram Barbie Brandt, a pretty girl, a year Rick's junior, looked inquiringly at her brother. I asked, did you want another waffle, Rick? She said. Rick looked up from his plate. Oh, huh? Uh, oh, no, thanks. I'm full up. I'll have one, Scotty said. She knows that, Hartson Brandt laughed. The day Scotty refuses a waffle is the day the world ends, or maybe the day Rick discovers perpetual motion. Seated with his family at the Sunday night supper table, Hartson Brandt might have been taken for almost anything but the famous scientist that he was. Except for the lines in his face, he might have been Rick's elder brother. He had the same leanness, the same speculative eyes, and the same alert, eager look that marked his son. And like Rick, he preferred comfortable old clothes with open shirt collars and moccasin-style shoes. Scotty accepted the waffle without comment, spread it liberally with butter, and poured a pint of syrup on top of it. From the end of the table, Mrs. Brant spoke up. She was a small, attractive woman with a pleasant face. Never mind, Scotty. Don't pay any attention to them she said. He's building up his muscles. A stocky young man spoke up from across the table. He knows there's no hope for his brains. Scotty withered him with a glance and went on eating. Jerry Webster was a reporter for the Whiteside, New Jersey newspaper and a regular attendant at the Brandt Sunday night waffle suppers. He continued. He'll need muscles if he takes that job I offered him. What job? Instantly, Barbie Brandt was all ears. He and Rick can have jobs at the paper for the summer. I asked the boss, and he said it was all right. Barbie gave a delighted squeal. Reporters? Honestly, Jerry? Can you get me a job, too? Jerry grinned. Well, the jobs aren't as reporters. They're as muscle men in the distribution department. They have to wrestle stacks of paper. Oh. Barbie's enthusiasm collapsed. Well, that's no fun. She appealed to Rick. Is it? Rick had been lost in thoughts of his own. Is what what? You're in a daze. You haven't heard a word, accused Barbie. Chatter, small talk, Rick said airily. I'm a man with weighty problems. I have to think. I have intuition. Do you know what? Barbie declared. My intuition tells me you and Scotty had an adventure today, I bet. Sometimes Barbie's perception startled Rick. He looked at her with surprised respect. How'd you know that? Well, when you left this morning, you were cheerful. And tonight, you're glooming into that syrup pitcher as though it was a crystal ball or something. That's how I know. Hudson Branch showed sudden interest. How about it, Rick? I thought you took Scotty up the coast on a routine flight. It started out to be routine, 
Scotty put in. I was just getting in some hours on my logbook. Then we spotted that sea mine and... Sea mine? Mrs. Brant's voice was startled. But those things are dangerous. Why, I read just the other day how some ship was blown up by a floating mine. Not that kind of mine, Mom, Rick hastened to say. He told them about the day's events. When he had finished, the others were silent for a moment. Then Jerry asked, Are you going back there after jobs? If it's all right, Rick said. He gave his father a pleading glance. Uh, might be interesting, Hartson Brandt agreed. I would discount what you heard in the restaurant. As you pointed out, the law protects fishing grounds from factory wastes. And in addition, I can't imagine what wastes from a seawater processing plant could possibly be poisonous. But it's so far away, Mrs. Brandt protested. Not very, Rick assured her. It's only about an hour and a half flying time. We would be home every weekend. I ain't as far as to bed, Scotty said, grinning. Mrs. Brandt sighed. Well, I suppose not. I remember the story we carried about that plant, Jerry put in. The owners are a couple of young fellas. One of them worked out the processes and the other put up the money. Well, something like that. I can't remember all of it. Let's not cross bridges before we come to them, Hartson Brandt advised. The boys don't have the jobs yet. Well, if you'll all go out on the porch, I'll bring cake and coffee, Mrs. Brandt invited. I'm afraid I can't stay, Jerry said regretfully. I promised one of the boys I'd cover the night desk for him. Bobby, how about running me back to the mainland? All right. You'll save some cake for me, won't you, Mom? If I can keep it away from Scotty, dear. Jerry thanked Mrs. Brandt and said goodbye to the others. Then he and Barbie departed in the direction of the boat landing. Spindrift Island was separated from the New Jersey mainland by a rocky tidal flat underwater at high tide. Transportation to Whiteside, the nearest town, was by motorboat, or Rick's Cub. Two fast motorboats were kept in a hook-shaped cove below the big house, which was located on the north side of the island overlooking the sea. Harson Brandt and the two boys went out to the big screened porch as Jerry and Barbie left. Rick walked to the end of the porch and looked across the edge of the orchard to where the great bulk of the laboratories dominated the south tip of the island. It seemed strange not to see the building ablaze with light. I wonder what the professors are doing now. I'll bet they miss Spindrift. So their letters say, Hartson Brandt said. But they're all very busy. Hobart has something up his sleeve that I think we may hear about soon. He referred to Hobart Zircon, the big bluff scientist who had been with the expedition to Tibet. He was in Washington now, studying at the Institute of Oceanography. Julius Weiss, the little mathematician, was also in Washington. The other two professors, Weiss Carver and Professor Gordon, were out on the Pacific coast. Thinking of Hobart Zircon in Tibet brought to mind the newest member of the Spindrift Island family, Chada, the Hindu boy who had become their friend and ally on the Tibetan expedition, was at school in Massachusetts, studying hard. He had refused to take the summer vacation, preferring to take special courses. This way, he had written, I think so I get smart two times as fast, but I come home in maybe August. This school has much more fat than my world almanac. Chala's education had been a great source of amusement to the boys. He had laboriously memorized most of a very old edition of the world almanac. I feel sort of guilty about not being home when everybody else is away, Rick said. 
Hartson Brandt smiled. Don't feel too guilty. There wouldn't be too much excitement for you here. Rick returned the smile gratefully. He had the best parents in the world, he thought. They encouraged his ideas, whether they took the form of going to Connecticut to work for the summer, or whether they were perfectly useless inventions, such as he sometimes turned out. A sharp bark sounded from the direction of the orchard. Rick whistled and a shaggy little dog came trotting over. He scratched at the screen door and was admitted. At once, Hartson Brandt and Scotty let out sharp protests. A harsh, distinctive odor smote Rick's nose forcibly. Oh, dismal, he groaned. Dismal rolled over, all four legs in the air, and played dead. You should, Rick said sternly. Will you ever learn to keep away from the skunks? Dismal whined for forgiveness. Outside, Rick ordered. Wait until Barbie comes back. She can sprinkle him with cologne, Hartson Brandt said. It'll take more than foo-foo water to kill that smell, Scotty commented. Mrs. Brandt now appeared with a loaded tray. She sniffed the air and then exclaimed, Oh, Dismal, not again! He'll never learn, Rick said. Dismal sat up and begged, then played dead again. Yeah, teach him to vanish, Scotty suggested. As Rick let the reluctant pup outside, he heard the phone ring. Scotty ran to answer when he heard snatches of conversation. Who's it for? Well, just a sec. Okay, read it. In a moment, he returned, his forehead creased in a frown. What is it? Hartson Brandt asked. It's for Rick, Scotty said. He handed over a sheet of paper. It's a telegram. Rick read it aloud. Mr. Galt informed me of your visit to Crayville today. He took the number of your plane and learned your name from Civil Air Authority. Appreciate your interest, but regret all positions at mine are filled. It was signed, Douglas Chambers, Crayville, Seamine. Well, how do you like that? Scotty exclaimed. Rick read it over again rapidly. I don't, he said slowly. Listen, how old would you say Mr. Galt was? About 70. And he read the license number on the cub? When? He couldn't have seen it except when we were over the town at 2,000 feet. And could he have read it that high in the air? What do you mean, Rick? Harson Brandt asked. It's wacky. Rick's mind was racing. There was something else about the note that didn't ring true. After a moment's thought, he got it. Wait, it's Sunday. There wouldn't be anybody at the Civil Air Authority office on Sunday. And listen, this is addressed to Rick Brandt. Rick, not Richard. But it's Richard on my plane registration. A phony, Scotty exclaimed. I'd say somebody doesn't want you to apply for a job at the Crayville plant, Arson Brandt said. But who? Rick asked. Nobody up there knows us. And no one could have known my nickname. Somebody did, Scotty said flatly. Rick looked thoughtfully into the puzzled faces around him. Yeah, he agreed. I guess somebody did. <laughs>